Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. We're very glad that you can be here with us for our Sabbath School discussion. The topic this week is on ministering like Jesus. Uh, my name's Cameron. I'm sure that we've got a good discussion in front of us. It's a very rich topic. G'day, I'm Ken. I look forward to the discussion. Hello, this is Luke, calling in from Sydney this time, and very excited to be here and here. Welcome home, Luke. Thank you. And I'm Lachlan, joining from Sydney. Now, we have had some comments on previous episodes, one very nice um, message from Narelle in New South Wales, and she commented on our discussion about the gift of tongues, which I think was two weeks ago, wasn't it? And uh, she, she wondered whether perhaps the gift of speaking in your own language, but with clarity, is itself a, a spiritual gift. And I, I think that that's a wonderful idea. Uh, but we don't need spectacular intervention all the time. Sometimes what we need is for God to help us do the things we can do, but to do them better. And we certainly hope uh, that as we have this discussion, that, that uh, God's Spirit would be here with us and help us find out some exciting new ideas to think about. The passage we're going to read today as we think about ministering like Jesus comes from Luke chapter 8, and I'm going to start reading from verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Then Jesus asked, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and press in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I noticed that power had gone out from me. When the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher any more. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise! And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Right, well, there's a lot of contrasts in this story. The one that struck me just at the very end um, is that he deliberately calls attention to the woman who's healed, uh, whose bleeding is healed. And she tells what God's done for her in front of the entire crowd. And he has to press pretty hard. Uh, but when he's just raised someone from the dead, he tells the girl's parents to tell no one. This is very interesting in contrast that. And also, not just that, but um, he doesn't let anyone except for his, you know, three of his closest companions and the parents, to come in with him. That's right. There's a real contrast with the crowd, isn't there? There's a complete contrast with the crowd. Um, the way he draws attention to the woman is very interesting. Uh, 
my my brother and i don't know if he came up with this himself or, or he got this observation from somewhere else tells this story uh, really well from a surprise surprise social justice perspective because there's a whole lot of little details in the story of how he deals with the woman that you don't notice uh, when you just read through it on face value um, and, and also having a little bit of an understanding of the culture of the time is really important. So this woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years was unclean. Uh, and being unclean, she was not allowed ever to enter the synagogue, uh, which placed her more or less on the lowest rung of Jewish society. So she was, uh, we would say, um, uh, disadvantaged. She was, she was discriminated against. As opposed to Jairus. As opposed to Jairus, who, exactly, who is, who is the, you know, who is the highest rung of Jewish society, being, being one of the religious leaders. Um, and this is why she's hiding, uh, hiding who she is. And, 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 and she would, she's been this way for 12 years. She would have got very accustomed to not drawing attention to herself. Now, the first really interesting de- I can go through this whole thing if if stop me if you want to if you want to interject a comment at any point. The the first really interesting thing to note about this story is that she is not healed when Jesus talks to her. She is healed immediately on touching his cloak. It happens automatically before anybody notices her, before he notices her. And now Jesus is in a hurry to go off and heal this important person's child who is very very sick and this woman is is sick and and unwell but she's not dying and yet he stops to probably it heavily implied that he knows what's happened actually he stops to make a very public point to the whole crowd uh he does not stop to heal her she's already healed and Ah. he should be in a hurry to go and do something else but he chooses to stop and have this conversation where he talks about somebody being healed and he calls the woman out and he has her tell her story, witness, as it were, uh, going back a, f- a few episodes, in front of the crowd and publicly tells her that she has been healed by her faith and to go in peace. I like where this is heading, Luke. Which is, in, in essence, is saying to her, is restoring her status in society in a really big way. Well, it's a, it's a great commendation. The... the um effectively then christ doesn't stop for her benefit he stops not, for, well i guess well, she benefits but it's for the crowds but it's it's to restore correct understanding between her and the crowd it, yes it's it's for for everybody's benefit hers the crowds also for Jairus's, um because you know the way it plays out subsequently with the even greater miracle it, it tells two lessons at once one is is the priorities and the perspective of god how he does not look at human rank and our measures of of exterior importance and secondly the limitless power of god so if you want to talk about the things that jesus cares about one of the very clear lessons from this story is that jesus cares about social equality he reinstates her to her proper position in the social order and, and, and does it very publicly in front of everybody so that everybody will know this woman is whole and must be included in your society. And, and 
And all the crowd would have heard the next sentence, or it would have the news would have spread pretty quickly if they came up to tell Jesus that Jairus' daughter is dead. It's interesting that the same, at least in the NIV, in verse 48, Christ addresses the woman as daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. And the next sentence is, someone comes to Jairus and says, your daughter is dead. Mm. Christ is 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 drawing a not Christ so much as Luke the narrative writer is drawing a a connection between this lady and Jairus's daughter, who has been the lady who has been fully and wholly healed and reinstated not just physically but socially um, uh, with the uh, complete uh, loss. Uh, socially, physically, uh, of the uh, of Jairus' daughter. I just noticed this, and I don't know why I've never noticed it before. The daughter, it explicitly says, was about 12 years old. And yes. The woman had been bleeding for 12 years. Yes. Mm. So there's there, mm. there's another... Th- these two are being... For as long as that girl had been alive, um, this woman had been excluded mm. uh, from society. So... Uh, the, this story seems to be very well written. I like your your perspective, Luke. Well, it's a lot of new ideas. As, as I said, I can't take credit for it. But but since <laughs> I heard that that detail that that he didn't need to stop to heal her, she could have got the practical benefits of the healing if he had just kept walking. Everything that happens from verse forty five onwards is done intentionally to make a, a social and a, a spiritual and a moral point. Uh, the, the other thing, of course, is that is that in Hebrew society, and this is something we see in a lot of Jesus' other healings, is that people believed that physical infirmities, disfigurements, uh, afflictions, especially ones from birth, were the result of sin, either your own sin or the sin of your parents. You know, So this woman was seen as a sinner, because of because of her illness and so he was he was dealing with that perception as well and the invitation for her to go in peace uh, contrasts that uh, completely because the peace uh, that she if she is to experience that peace it has to be also on the social level yes Mm. and it's while he's still talking that he gets news of of jara's daughter what else was he going to be saying? <laughs> what what was he interrupted yeah. from? What was the incomplete sentence? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. It, it's I mean, it seems evident that he was kind of he'd stopped to give a lesson, and he was kind of taking his time, and and that would be a bit weird uh, if he wasn't subsequently going to make the bigger point about the the uh, limitless power of God. Uh, there's just so much to like about this story. That that one observation that I heard that, you know, um, he didn't need to stop and talk to her to heal her makes this one of my favourite stories in the Gospel. It seems he's not in a rush for the resurrection, is he? Uh, with Lazarus or, or with uh, Jairus' daughter, he's happy to let them die so that he can raise them. There's a, there's a couple. It's not just that. It's not just that. He seems, Jesus is obsessed with urgent solutions to to physical elements that don't have urgency now i know you can say every every second longer after 12 years is 
is an extra second of pain and suffering, but it's been 12 years and waiting half an hour is not going to change meaningfully this woman's life. But that's the same with so many other things. Most of the miracles that Jesus has recorded as having performed on the Sabbath all of them, do not need to be performed on the Sabbath. Mm. He could have been a really good Adventist and said, look, uh, sit and pray with me, and as soon as the sun goes down, I'll heal you. And the person who'd been blind from birth or who had a withered hand... Yeah, I'm just uh, turning to it. Look, it's in Luke 6. It's got, it, he is so scathing on the Pharisees. Um, it's in Luke 6... Google tells me, um, uh, Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, he's just been criticized for doing stuff on the Sabbath. Um, and the Pharisees bring the men with the withered, withered hand to him deliberately for the purpose of finding a reason to accuse Jesus. And they watch him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Because this man's hand's been withered for a long time. And I, this is another story that's wonderfully told because he tells the men to stand up in front of everyone and Jesus said, is it lawful on the Sabbath? What's lawful? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to destroy it? And they, not, they can't answer him. So the man says, stretch out your hand. And what I like about the story is the man stretched out his hand and it had been healed. Huh. No one sees the healing. No one can say to Christ, he healed on the Sabbath. <laughs> right. That's a detail I had forgotten. Yeah. Yes, a very uh, interesting observation, Ken. That's a similarity with this with the story of the bleeding woman that we just read, because the the speaking about it is is actually distinct from the the healing itself. Mm. Now the speaking about it's odd too. Um, he says, "Who touched me?" Everyone denied touching him. They all said, "We haven't touched you." And then when really push comes to shove, Jesus says, "No, look, someone's touched me." And Peter says, "Well, you know, actually." Well, of course, everybody touched you. Look at the crowd. Of course, everybody touched. Which means, which means they have all been lying when they said that they didn't touch him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What they thought they were going to get in trouble. There must have been something in the way that Jesus asked the question. Because why would you deny it? You're in a you're in a massive crowd, and someone says, "Who touched me?" Um, Wouldn't you just say, "Oh, yeah, we all did." The the fact that they deny it suggests that there was something about the intensity, something about the 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 sort of depth with which Jesus must have uttered that question. Who was it that touched him? I wonder, and this, this um, is a bit of speculation because I don't know, but it does seem like the hallmark of a society that, that powerful, rich, wealthy, important people get more personal space than everyone else. And they may have been affording Jesus or trying to afford Jesus respect. You know, the question who touched me might have come as a, nobody's supposed to be touching me sort of thing. Yeah. And Jesus yeah. is kind of playing with them a bit because <laughs> that's not why he's asking. It still, it still puzzles me that Christ draws attention, deliberate attention to the healing of the woman and then deliberately tells Jairus to hide the story about his daughter, to not tell anyone. I mean, what does it mean? There is something subtle going on here, Cam, that... I don't have an answer to, but I'd like to draw attention to. Jesus says to the bleeding woman in verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And he's at the start of this story in verse 40, he, 41, a man came named Jairus and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house for his only daughter was sick and dying. But only a chapter earlier in Luke 7, starting in verse 1, 
there's the story of the centurion's servant. So this is a centurion, not a leader of the synagogue, but a leader in the Roman army who comes and is requesting healing for his servant. It's not the same as healing for your daughter, but there's some mirroring, I think, in this in this story. But the difference is that the centurion says, you don't need to come. You just, I know what it's like. You just say, be healed, and the, and the servant will be healed, and I'll go on my way. It, it's almost as if, it's almost as if this story with Jairus is shining a small but subtle spotlight on Jairus's comparative lack of faith. Um, and, and there's almost that sense in which, well, don't go and tell anyone what had happened, because in this case, the main transition transformation that needed to be to be taking place was their own faith, the parents of the of the resurrected daughter. We could have spoken about that story of the centurion when we were talking about words and the power of words last week, couldn't we? Because the centurion says, "Just say the word, uh, and my servant will be healed." Uh, I think it's interesting that, um, uh, but I think that is an interesting contrast. The other thing I think is what one of the things that we're primed to do when we come across a religious leader is to think critically of them um, and to say, well, clearly they were in the wrong because Jesus often has um, uh, correction for the Pharisees and the religious leaders. But I also wonder whether or not in the same way that he was uh, restoring the daughter, uh, sorry, the uh, woman who touched him, uh, his daughter, um, uh, to um, physical healing and to her status in society and making sure that everybody knew that. Notice in uh, the story, when he goes to Jairus, he doesn't want people seeing that she's dead. They all, they all say she's dead. Um, and, and he says, no, I'm going to bring these people in. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And then everybody, uh, the, the, three, the five people in there, see her raised from the dead. But he says, well, look, don't tell anybody what happened because you remember that touching and being in the presence of a dead person uh, is unclean. Um, so he's wanting to ensure that Jairus standing and the, the, the daughter's parents standing um, is not uh, damaged by the death that he has completely overturned. In, in other mm. words, Ken, you're saying that he fibbed and then he manufactured the evidence to support his fib <laughs> so, that, so that everyone would have believed that, that she had been on his... I mean, that's what would have happened. When she comes walking out of the door, they would have said, oh, we were laughing. He's right. Yeah. She, was, she was only asleep. And if Jairus did what Jesus asked, he, he, would, have, he would have supported that narrative. Uh, there is another contrast between Jairus and this century and... Like you, you said, with the centurion, it's just a servant. It's not a daughter. That makes the centurion's concern um, even more... More admirable. Praise, more admirable. Because I'm sure a Roman centurion was not in want of servants. True. Um, so so th there's that element. And you, your statement about faith is, I think, also borne out by this comparison. He says to the he says to the crowd with the centurion, "I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel." And so he really commends the centurion's faith. And when we come over to Jairus, uh, he says to the woman, "Your faith has healed you." And then 
daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. And then Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. So Jairus has has less faith than the woman, as really spelled out by um, the story. But it's also perhaps understanding, I would imagine, uh, sorry, it's also perhaps understandable. I would imagine that having your daughter die could be a real trial to someone's faith. I think what you can really see in all three of these stories is how much Jesus is concerned, how much he genuinely cares for the well-being of others. Their immediate well-being, their social well-being, their, their, their emotional well-being, their spiritual well-being, he doesn't neglect any of them. You know, in, in the case of the centurion, um, he's, he's, he's sort of, he's publicly commending this, this heathen outsider um, and teaching the crowd a, a lesson. Um, about faith and then in the case of the woman he's making her healing public for her benefit and in the case of Jairus daughter he's making his daughter's healing private for Jairus's and the daughter's benefit so everything he's doing is to help the people the most yeah and uh it does it does suggest um some things which i've um secretly hoped to be true uh, being a, a private person, and always suspected might be true, and that is maybe there are some aspects of our personal walk with God that are personal, that don't need to be shared. I think that there is a huge power in personal testimony, but there is a sense in which, isn't there, if you if you share, if I had to share everything that Melissa and I said to each other, that in our marriage, then in one sense the marriage isn't a marriage between Melissa and I, is it? It's got everyone else involved. Uh, so there is a sense in which uh, Christ seems to be sympathetic to this. Uh, perhaps this is just an experience that Jairus needs time to think over, that a crowd of people fussing over him won't help. I really like that idea that, that the, the don't tell anyone what happened is, is partly about keeping them in good standing and connected to the community. Because one of the themes that... I see quite a lot in Jesus' interaction with people. Uh, I see it prominently in the story of Zacchaeus, for example. Um, Jesus is constantly trying to reintegrate people into into their society, into their community. For Jesus, the reconciliation of the community and the restoration into community is a massive part of what it means to be a saving agent, to be saving that person. And I'm interested about it because in the Sabbath school lesson for this week, there was a question uh, referring to some of the stories uh, in the Gospels about healings. The question in the lesson was, what indications do we have that Jesus linked physical healing with meeting the ultimate need for reconciliation with God? And that's fine. That's an interesting question. But it's fascinating to me that we've been just discussing and highlighting the way that Jesus is linking physical healing with reconciliation into community, reconciliation amongst fellow humans. Well, it reminds me of that, and I can't remember the exact quote, and I don't know where in the Gospels it is, but it reminds me of the teaching of Jesus where he says, if you have a grievance with your brother, go and forgive him first and then pray to God. Mm. I think it's in Matthew chapter 5. And there you go. The The idea that maybe there's 
that you could have a separate reconciliation with God that does not require reconciliation with others, with community, doesn't seem to be what Jesus is teaching. What he is teaching is that they are, in fact, closely connected. And the reconciliation with with community and with other people actually has to precede the reconciliation with God. It is important for us to belong to a community and to feel like we belong uh, to a community. I mean, if you think of the first miracle recorded in John's Gospel, the water into wine, that seems like a very superfluous miracle. But it wasn't just wine, it was the best wine. And it made that wedding a wonderful occasion. There's no cause for the master of the feast or the bride or the groom to be embarrassed. It seems that Christ cares about things like that, or at least his mother did. At what time did the wine actually become... What did the water actually become wine? Was it when it was... Uh, was it changed when it was in the uh, the vats? Or was it changed... Uh, or the containers? Or was it changed when it was poured out into the glass? Or did it change in the glass? Or did it change from the glass when it went to the... Uh, the person or, or, who was hosting the feast. Can, I don't know. Or Ken, was it just the small atomic layer of the water that made contact with the taste buds ah, that yeah, turned into wine? There you are. But it, look, it raises an interesting question about these miracles because um, uh, here in the story of the woman, going back to that one, um, the healing happened immediately. Uh, she touched the fringe of his clothes what is the what what's the the physical process uh, that is undertaken by faith uh, acting on a touch between a hand and the clothes worn by Jesus um, and I, wow I think this is really interesting and I, there's a certain sort of mystical element to the way this story is told and it connects to a long Christian heritage throughout Europe of relics, you know, Christian relics that are, that are housed in some of the big cathedrals and have been considered for big chunks of Christian history to, to hold particular powers. Um, you're, you know, we're not particularly... Typically, in a modern Christian attitude, we're not particularly persuaded by some of those ideas about the power resident in in historical relics. Like, so not, that part of this story is a bit troubling. It's not just an invented idea, though. Um, your comment that this passage of scripture seems to buy into those ideas. Our discussion last week about scripture, where we where we said that the Bible is just so diverse, um, and it's only through a tradition that you filter out what's important and what's not important. There is biblical support for the concept of relics. What about Elisha's bones? Well, true. Who, who resurrected a person when they were thrown in. certainly suggests that Christ's power was, was so big. There was so much potential there. If just the corner of the robe could cure this woman. Uh, you imagine what all the other people who were jostling him were missing out on. Well, I wonder... I wonder if there may be a clue here in the words Jesus says to the woman, your faith mm. has healed you. Your faith has made you yes. well. Is it, is it the fact that it's, there's nothing magic about Jesus's cloak, but it's the fact that that physical act of touch was the representation of, or the outpouring of the woman's faith. Mm. The woman is the agent in the touch. It's not Jesus who is making the touch happen. It's the woman is the agent in the touch. She has become convinced her faith is strong. And she says to herself, if I can touch that garment, I will be well. 
we can sort of get on our modern technological high horse and say that's not how this stuff works. But the point about it is not really the mechanism. The point about it is that that is an indication of, an expression of, an outpouring of the woman's mm. faith. In, in the same way that the Roman centurion's faith was expressed by him telling Jesus, I know that you are in command. You can just give the order and it will happen. You don't need to be there. It's not you doing it. And it's important to remember. We say, and maybe it's it's not good that we're careless with our language this way. We always say, Jesus did this miracle. Jesus did that miracle. Jesus healed this person. Jesus raised that person from the dead. Jesus never claims to do any of those things. He always says, it is your faith that has done this. He never takes credit for it. And I think it may be good for us to follow his example, because otherwise we risk placing the power in the wrong place. Interesting, isn't it, that um, there's a movement from uh, the Gentile centurion who says, don't even bother coming, Uh, you can do this at a distance, to the woman who says, I don't have to ask, Uh, all I have to do is touch. Uh, then uh, the, the outcast woman who says that, then to the religious leader who says, well, I better go and ask him uh, to come and do and he it. he has to come. And he has to actually come, and I have to be physically present uh, when it happens and see it with my own eyes. That, that's a fantastic observation, Ken. The three stories in order show a decreasing level of faith. And yet Jesus works with that faith that exists in each case to achieve yes. and, and the lowest amount necessary. of faith yeah. is, is the greatest miracle. I nearly, I nearly thumped the desk then, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Um, well, I was just going to um, introduce an entirely vacuous and I think meaningless question that uh, would have... <laughs> Would have provided. That sounds really must, must you, Cameron? Yeah, must you? Are, are you ready? <laughs> I want to place a bet on which part of the episode is okay. going to get cut. Given, given, given um, Luke's description, which I think is superb, that um, uh, for the woman, the act of the touch was an essential part of expressing her faith. Was she saved by her faith or by her works? There was a. There was a wonderful spiritual leader who once said, um, it is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Uh, mm. That's good. I've just thought of a good answer now. I didn't think of this before I asked the question. I think the best answer is yes. Mm. She was saved by her faith or her works. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well said. That's a very Jewish sort of answer. I like it a lot. Yeah, I... I can totally understand why that that debate and that question has has actually had a lot of validity and importance to be asked in the history of the Christian church and specifically in the history of the Adventist church. But I do find that in the ministry of Jesus and in Jesus' interactions with people, just as we've just identified, a more Jewish kind of nuanced combination of or, or paradoxical superposition of the two seems to be present far more frequently than, than a, a surgically divided well, one or the other. And maybe it wasn't. It's not indeed even a paradox. Maybe it's simply that a distinction is not drawn. Yeah. Uh, maybe uh, the fact we find it paradoxical is a reflection on, on us. Yes. 
uh, a poor a poor reflection on us. Uh, this idea of social standing, um, I, I like the idea that Christ is concerned uh, for how people fit into their community, that he, he recognises uh, the need of this woman to feel like she belongs. And uh, I think that that's an important perspective. And in relation to the Roman centurion, I think it's an interesting perspective there. The Roman centurion does a lot to affirm Christ. So when the Roman centurion says to Christ, look, you, you don't have to come. You can just do it now. That's the sort of person you are. Uh, that was a teachable moment for everyone around. Mm. And, you know, when, when you have, when you're a teacher and you get a complaint from uh, a colleague or a parent um, who thinks that you're doing your job poorly, it's so deflating. But to have someone say to you, look, I've got a job. Here it is. You do it. And you start to, you say, well, you know, I'm not sure. No, I'm sure you can do it. Off you, and off you go. Do your thing. Um, that's so uplifting. And in as much as Christ was, was fully divine but also fully human, I'm sure Christ just so enjoyed being told by the, by the centurion that he didn't have to come, uh, that there was someone who actually understood him a bit better than all these other people he, he was trying to break through to. Yeah, well, he says, doesn't he? I've not seen faith such as this in all of Israel. Mm. Yeah. Which is a pretty and, confronting uh, statement. Yes. And I, we know that, that Christ um, was capable of of getting discouraged, at least as shown by the Gethsemane um, experience, uh, which itself is a, is a thought I've never had. Um, I wonder, was he discouraged at other points in his ministry? This experience with the centurion must have been a, a very affirming moment for him. Christ is not uniformly um, interested, though, in the in the good standing of of people in the eyes of the community. Uh, calling out people in public for being whitewashed tombs and full of dead men's bones isn't the sort of thing you would say if if you wanted people to have a a nice reputation. They pointed that out to him. Uh, don't you realise that yeah. you're offending us? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one distinction, or the distinction that Christ uses, you know, who are the people that need, uh, I was going to say the tall poppies that need trimming down to size, but that's such an Australian overused, anti-success, done-to-death metaphor. That's that's not the best way of saying it. But obviously Christ looked at some people and said, these people need lifting up. And he looked at other people and said, for their own benefit, they need to think less of themselves. Um, and I, I thought of the Beatitudes where he, he states that uh, it's the meek and the merciful and the pure in heart and the people who are hungry, hung, have hunger and a thirst for righteousness, um, that these are the people, not really who, they're not the people who will be blessed, they're the people who are already blessed. They're the people who have the correct view of themselves and their place in the world. And they're the people who are capable of being uplifted uh and and supported and and when you know you're hungry you can at least accept food uh whereas the people who were who were not hungry in the social sense the people who, who were at the top uh, were quite threatened by Christ. i think it's often true that the messages of inclusion of the outcasts often irrationally cause fear 
anxiety and anger in the people who are in the middle of the social world or the power structures or whatever it might be. It is certainly the case that we do feel a bit threatened. Do you remember, Lachlan, in one of the Asterix books, I can't remember which one it is, uh, Geriatrix is one of the old um, men of the village, and the village in which Asterix lives, lives has a couple of dozen people in it. It's, it's not a city. He lives in this village. And um, there's someone new to the village who's causing a, a lot of upset. And Geriatrix is seen saying in one frame of the comic uh, that he has nothing against foreigners in the ordinary way. Some of his best friends are foreigners. But these particular foreigners are not from our village. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, coming, coming back to the, the idea of the relationship between reconciliation with God and reconciliation with others... I went and looked up Matthew 5, Ken. Mm. You're spot on. It is, it is there. And it's in verse um, 23 and 24. And it's actually a little bit different to what I had remembered. Um, and it rem- it, the, 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 the choice of words in it uh, triggered another connection with something very, very early in the Bible that I think is quite interesting. That maybe Jesus is not teaching here such a revolutionary idea as as we might consider it Uh, verse 23 and 24 reads and this is a sermon on the mount therefore if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you leave your gift there in front of the altar first go and be reconciled to them then come and offer your gift the choice of words there brother or sister gifts and altars reminded me immediately of the story of Cain and Abel. Hmm. Because in the story of Cain and Abel, it is mentioned that Cain's sacrifice was not pleasing to God. And it doesn't actually explain why. There's some sort of... They offer different things, but it's not actually explicitly stated that his choice of sacrificial materials was not pleasing to God. What is known is that at that point, Cain was already jealous of Abel. He was already bitter. And he made the sacrifice while bitter, and it was rejected, and then things played out. So this is not a new concept, necessarily, that Jesus is teaching, but maybe a, a very much-needed reminder. Well, as I said in last week's episode, um, dealing with interesting topics is an occupational hazard if you're in the, in the job of making a podcast, because we always seem to be running out of time and uh, having to leave all sorts of interesting ideas unsaid. Uh, But we do have some time for some concluding thoughts. The lesson is about uh, ministering... (coughs) Pardon me. The lesson is about ministering like Jesus. What can we learn from Jesus' ministry in these stories that should inform the way we minister to to a needy world? Well, you know, I'm not even going to go with these stories. Um, uh, I'm going to go with a ministry that Jesus um, uh, provided... Uh, to the believers in John chapter 17. Um, and, and, but I think it ties in nicely with this uh, idea of being in community um, and thinking about the community of the Trinity between uh, the Father, the, the love between the Father and the Son and what he seeks between us uh, as uh, his followers and uh, us and the world. Uh, and I just refer generally to uh, John chapter 17. Um, perhaps verse 20 
I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. And one would have to suppose that being one doesn't uh, is not necessarily made up of, and certainly not limited to, all one in the sense of doctrinal unity. Or, or other forms of unity. Indeed, Paul speaks about the different parts of the body, and yet they are one. But maybe that phrase includes a genuine concern, a concern for people's social inclusiveness mm. and whether people feel socially included and like they belong. So I think a, a powerful concluding comment that's on my mind is these stories, the way that we've discussed some of the contrasts, some of the progression, some of the differences between the stories we looked at, just absolutely bring home the fact that Jesus in his ministry with people was very much willing to meet them where they were at. You know, he doesn't say to Jairus, well, now, look, Jairus, I actually don't need to come to your house. Um, if you just had a little bit more faith, then all you'd have to do is ask me to heal for, from where I am. And I can do it because I did it a chapter ago. <laughs> it, that doesn't seem to be part of, what, a part of what he's doing. And as true as it might be, sometimes that kind of truth is, is the opposite of Jesus's ministry. It is destructive. It is belittling. It is um, exclusionary. Of community, and I think that that's something quite helpful for us to to ponder, for everyone to ponder. But the sort of people who enjoy, you know, maybe chatting about the Bible at great length and recording ourselves, um, who who enjoy thinking about things, we've also got to be, I think, humble enough and willing to engage with people where they're at. And there are some people who who are at a very different level, and that's okay. A different level of whatever it might be, a different level of intellectual engagement with the Bible or of spiritual development or of emotional maturity or um, whatever it might be. And I think we, we can sit back and relax. It's it's probably okay. Sometimes like I have to talk to people who are at a different level of infatuation with aeroplanes. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't go that far, Cam. Well, I have to try. Well, no, um, <laughs> luckily not on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But... But uh, that's a silly point, a silly silly comment with a serious under, undertone. I do find it really easy to talk to people who enjoy aeroplanes, but there's nothing morally virtuous in that, is there? And no. often what makes us feel warm towards people is so fickle. And one thing you quickly realise working at a school is that human beings are so adept and expert at determining who's on the in and who's in the out of any social group. And, and the kids at school who know they're on the out know it. Mm. Um, and the kids who have always been on the in don't sometimes. They just don't recognise what it's like. Uh, and the real challenge, I think, is to find someone... Uh, Christ even at times goes out of his way to find people. But when we encounter someone who's on the out, uh, to ma- find a way of making them feel included may be as important a healing as stopping their bleeding or curing their cancer. Very well said. Agree.